Um, I wanted to uh, start this morning just with a, uh, a word of thank you um, uh, to everybody who uh, helped with the block party last week. It was just really fantastic and really phenomenal. Uh, obviously, to Mike and Kevin uh, and Stephen and, uh, and uh, those that uh, put in a lot of work and a lot of hours leading up, but uh, also to tons and tons of volunteers, uh, Brittany and Jody, who kept everything uh, organized and kept us running, and uh, everybody who worked uh, in the kitchen, especially ahead of time, to uh, Donnie and Jackie and Elaine and, uh, and Kathy and all of the guys on the grill um, with uh, Paul and uh, Reg and Mike. And uh, I, I've, I shouldn't have started naming names because I know I'm going to miss somebody. And most especially to all of you um, for the ways that you stepped up and helped and made it work um, and uh, were flexible and, hey, we got to change things up a little bit or uh, it's a little different. Um, and it, it really made a big difference um, and lived up to uh, our, our desire to be in the community and ministering well to our community. Uh, and if community is our middle name, we want to make sure we are caring well for our community. So a uh, big thank you to everyone in that way. Uh, also a uh, somewhat more minor thank you to everyone who bought me a Pepsi this week. Thank you so much. Really appreciate, I recognize for some of you, snark is your love language, and I see you, I see that, thank you, and I, uh, I appreciate that. I, always, I also wanted to uh, just take a moment and make sure uh, to correct something that I said last week. I, I slipped up, I hope most of you understood that it was a slip up, but I, I do want to highlight, I mentioned, uh, you know, Jesus affirmed the 39 books of the Old Testament, and, the, and authorized the 27 books of the New Testament, which together total makes 66, and that is what we believe uh, in the, the traditional canon here, uh, affirming these 66 uh, books of the Bible. Um, God's word is perfect, your pastor is not, uh, and so I, it bears reminding every now and then uh, that I do slip up and make mistakes, and I just want to make sure that we are on the same page with that. Uh, this morning, I want to continue our study of Hebrews. Uh, we're going to be digging into Hebrews chapter 2, uh, and I will uh, read that here now in its entirety, uh, if you would like to go there and read along with me. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him, that you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control at present. 
Yet we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus, for the gift of yourself to us to make propitiation for our sins. And I pray that we would endeavor well to get to know you in all of the ways that you have revealed yourself to us through your word, through remarkable works and signs and wonders and gifts, but also especially through your son, Jesus. And we pray that all we do would be to proclaim the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name this morning. Amen. In the mid-90s, Joan Osborne had a hit song, and I, I, you'll have to believe me, it is not my intention to get it stuck in your head, but you know what, it's probably going to happen. And she posited in this song some uh, rhetorical questions about God. What if God was one of us, she asks. If God had a name, what would it be, and would you call it to his face? What would you ask if you had just one question? If God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see it? What if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us? Just a stranger on a bus trying to make his way home? And for those of us that are followers of Jesus, we may rightly listen to questions posited like this and respond with, uh, He is! He does! He did that. It's Jesus. God sent his son, Jesus, just like one of us. But this perspective of the person, and you'll notice, is just a slob like one of us. Because we have this idea of humanity being something imperfect. And of course, God couldn't be like one of us because God's perfect and human beings are subject to this life of awful imperfection. And yet, what I want to look at today, when we look at the book of Hebrews, and especially in chapter 2, do I need to switch? Turn it off. All right. 
Thank you very much. A life of imperfection. <laughs> what I want to look at is this idea that Jesus is, in fact, the perfect human. Jesus is the perfect human. Now, as we read through the book of Hebrews, and as uh, we talked about last week, the big picture of Hebrews is the author is trying to convince us that Jesus is better than anyone or anything we could ever possibly worship. And I would posit to you in reading Hebrews 2 that part of what makes Jesus better is that he is the perfect human. And that makes us a little bit uncomfortable because you know, the idea of saying we ought to worship Jesus because of his humanity, we don't really like that. That makes us uncomfortable. Because when we picture Jesus as a human, maybe that, that means something that kind of takes away from his deity. It takes away from his, his uh, exact imprint of the nature of God the Father, like we talked about last week and like Kevin read this morning. Maybe we think of Jesus as a human being, we have a picture that's a little bit mundane. Maybe like this one, uh, which Mike had originally said, hey, if we're studying Hebrews, maybe let's talk about Jesus because Hebrews coffee. Sorry, that's was the original idea for the theme of this uh, PowerPoint. No. Um, we think of, you know, when we think of Jesus as a human, it's like, oh, just another guy, just a slob like one of us. But in fact, what we see is the author of Hebrews is trying to get his audience to sort of see humanity in a different perspective, is trying to redefine what it means to be human and even kind of putting humanity in its sort of ideal perspective. And if we look at the book of Hebrews chapter 2, we see this. And the author starts in chapter 2, there's this kind of connection passage in the first four verses where uh, the author is connecting the, the ideas in chapter 1 with the ideas in chapter 2, and we see that uh, verse 1 starts with therefore, and we see that in multiple chapters throughout Hebrews. If you look at verse 1 of each of the chapters, many of them start with therefore. Remember that Hebrews is this sort of logical, um, you know, trying to lead you along to this practical exhortation, namely, cling to Christ. Don't, don't fall away from your faith. Much pay, we must pay much closer attention. And, and they repeat this here, don't drift away. But there's a couple of things that I want to highlight in this little connection passage. And one of them is this word, the message, the message declared by angels. Maybe your version, the, the translation in front of you, says the word. And by the way, this is the same word that John uses in his gospel to describe Jesus himself. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And even as we see the author kind of unpacking this idea that Jesus is the perfect manifestation of God's revelation in God revealing himself to us both through his written word, the Bible, and through his living word, his son, there is an appropriate connection that we are meant to make. For example, you might say, well, Jesus, is he 100% God, the exact imprint of God's nature like you talked about last week? Or is he 100% man? The answer is, yes, he is. That is part of our doctrine, fully God and fully man. If you want the fancy uh, 
you know, theological term that is hypostatic union, for those of you taking notes and if you want to impress at dinner parties. Hypostatic union, fully God and fully man. And you may well ask the same question about Scripture. Well, is this written by God or is this written by man? And the answer is, yes, it is. It is written fully by God. It is inspired by God while at the same time fully written by man. And that's why we can see differences in personality and themes and voice when we read from different authors in Scripture. There is a correlation between the word of God, Jesus, and the word of God in Scripture that we are meant to be making. The other thing that I want to point out in these early verses here is that the author kind of says, you know, there, there is something in where we got this revelation from and points out in verse 3, it was declared to us uh, by the Lord and attested to us by those who heard. In other words, the author is saying to an audience, we all heard directly from the disciples. We all heard directly from those apostles who heard it directly from Jesus and then, in, in fact, says, and this is confirmed by God. When we heard it from Jesus, it was confirmed by the work that God did through signs and through wonders, through miracles, through the giving of what we call the sign gifts uh, as this sort of imprint. It's a, God's way of saying, yes, believe them. This is true. I will validate that. And we see here the authority with which the author is, is saying these things and passing on and reminding and encouraging with these teachings of Jesus. And then we come to this part where the author is ramping up to convince us that God becoming man and humbling himself as a sacrifice for us was always the plan. Was always the plan. It was always God's plan to enter our humanity in this way. And then we see this in verse 5 where the author says, for it is not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Huh? What are we talking about? The author actually has to say, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the subjection of the world. And then in order to do so, references some Old Testament passages. And you and I might not immediately make the connection, but the audience obviously does. The author writes in such a way as to say, you know what we're talking about, right? Psalm 8, you know, you're, you feel me, right? And for, you know, those of us that can't quote Psalm 8 from memory, we might not immediately make the connection, but the author is saying, here's what we're talking about. Have you ever been with a group of people and they're way into a sport or, uh, or uh, an actor or, uh, or, or if, you, if you're ever around Star Wars people and they're talking about Star Wars and you think like, yeah, I've seen some of the movies, I know how to, and then they're talking about things that you're like, okay, I don't know what we're, to, maybe I'm not that much into Star Wars. The Hebrews is kind of like that, where the author is talking to this audience who is well-versed in scripture of the Old Testament and is constantly making these references is going, you know, and we reading this might not immediately think, oh yes, Isaiah. And so we have to dig a little bit. We have to understand, okay, hang on, what, what are we talking about here? So before we take a look at Psalm 8, which is what the author is about to quote, and, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily know that. Oh, uh, yeah, I think I've read that somewhere. Except there's a little note at the very bottom of my uh, Bible that says this is from Psalm 8. Oh, okay, that's helpful. The original audience didn't have that. They immediately knew, oh, right, he's quoting Psalm 8. This makes sense. 
I want to ask a rhetorical question. It is rhetorical, and also I will let you know this is a trick question, okay? I want to ask you a rhetorical trick question. Who is supposed to rule the world? Who is supposed to rule the world? And then what the author does is he, he quotes from Psalm 8 and references it in a way that's like, you, you know, Psalm 8, you know what we're talking about, right? And, and then says it like this, it has been testified somewhere. Hey, it's written somewhere. This is not an anonymous psalm. It's David who wrote Psalm 8. We know who said it and where. And the, the author says this in a way not, not like you and I might say it. Ah, it's in there somewhere. It's written somewhere. When I say, you know, it's in, you know that verse about, you know why I say it? Because I can't remember where. I have no idea. I'm like, it's, that's bible somewhere. It's in there, right? But the author, I don't think, has forgotten that David authored Psalm 8. I think that the author is trying to emphasize, it doesn't matter who the human author is, this is God's word. It was testified somewhere. And then references this very common messianic psalm. And what Psalm 8 is about, the role of humanity, the role of humankind as God has created us to be. And Psalm 8 more broadly says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And this is what we see written and quoted here in chapter 2. He goes on, the psalmist goes on, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field. And there is something about this psalm, and then the author of Hebrews both, who are kind of hearkening back to Genesis, hearkening back to the very creation of all of the created order, and mankind specifically, and mankind's chosen special role within creation. You can even look back at Genesis 1, as I'm sure many of the readers, the audience would have been thinking about at that point. And we read, as God is creating humanity, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Jump down, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food." And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, and everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. So let me ask again, and maybe you wrote down the answer and showed your neighbor so that you could show off or whatever, this rhetorical trick question, who is supposed to rule the world? Humanity is. God created us with the intent that all the rest of his creation would be ours to have dominion over, to subdue, to fill the earth and rule over it. 
And we get a little bit uncomfortable with that for a couple of reasons. Number one, our idea of, of dominion and power and ruling and subjection, we, I, I think rightly so, have some negative connotation with that. It all seems a little bit sort of authoritarian and dictatorial and, you know, oh, dominion and rule. And we don't really like that. Why? Because something has gone horribly wrong with the way that we are ruling and have dominion over the earth. We don't do it well. We have messed it up. Even in the way that we are meant to care for all the animals and the plants, we have royally messed it up and we are not good stewards with what God has meant for us to have dominion over in the way he has given it to us. And the second is, you might be thinking, I don't have that at all. You know, all the, all the cattle and everything that creeps on the earth and everything. I have been given one dog and I have no dominion over that dog. I have no control. Subjection, my foot, he does what he wants. And we might think, I have no control over my home. You've seen the way my children run around this place. <laughs> I, am, I am not ruling the world very well, as it turns out. And yet, we see in Jesus, the promised Messiah, a kind of perfect dominion that takes place. Why? Because Jesus is not just human. Jesus is the perfect human. Jesus is the perfect human. Crowned with glory, it says in verse 9. But how is it? How is it that Jesus has fulfilled this ideal image of what humanity ought to be? How is it that Jesus has rightfully taken his place as Lord over all creation, having everything subject to him, dominion perfectly over all of the created order? How did he do it? Verse 9, crown with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see, there's something very strange in God's kingdom. There's something topsy-turvy, upside-down, counterintuitive about the way that God shows us the ideal, the way that God shows us humanity ought to be. I meant for you to rule. I meant for you to have dominion over all created things. And I myself am going to enter your humanity and show you, Jesus, as the perfect human, what that's like. How am I going to do it? By dying, by suffering, by giving up my power, by giving up my authority, by not opening my mouth when they make accusations, by submitting myself to execution and suffering, to death. That's how God does it. That's how God takes back this dominion humanity was meant to have because Jesus here is the perfect human. God's power and glory best showcased in humility and self-sacrifice and giving up that power. Why? For us so that we together would be able to experience God's ideal for humanity. In verse 10, we see that, bringing many sons to glory. That's us, sons and daughters, okay? This is, it's meant to be inclusive language, all of humanity. We get that. 
we get to come into this ideal world that God has envisioned for humanity when he created us, when he designed us. Why? Because Jesus did it. Because he sacrificially gave up the power and dominion so that we could experience what that is like because Jesus is the perfect human. And because of it, because of his sacrifice, because of his death, because of his suffering, we are redeemed and healed and made whole. We get to experience that because of Jesus, because he is the perfect human. We read on, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. He who sanctifies is Jesus. Those who are sanctified is us. All have one source. We're all human. It is way too easy to think of God as this far-off creator, omnipotent, holy, totally unknowable. And yet God says, no, 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 no. It is so that I can invite you into exactly the kind of life I have designed for you that I am going to enter into your humanity and together bring you all to glory, the glory that I intended. And then there's some more quoting of Messianic Psalms, and I will admit when I read this, I did not immediately go, oh yes, I know exactly where that is, but again, the audience would, they know. This is from Psalm 1, uh, excuse me, Psalm uh, 22, which is a, a really great and wonderful messianic psalm. In fact, it's the very psalm that Jesus quotes when he is on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is not about uh, God forsaking us. It is quoting a psalm of David where he's, he starts out by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, it is in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the trial and the, the, the struggle that in the end, God uses the suffering and the trial and the struggle to deliver the person. The psalm ends with victory. The psalm ends with God delivering us into redemption. And that is the whole idea, that God is meaning for us to absolutely take our place in what he designed to be a perfect humanity, a perfect sort of uh, experience as humans. And he does it by entering our humanity and subjecting his own son to suffering and death so that we could experience it too. Because in the end, it is redemption. God has not forsaken us. Even though it might feel like it, he is using the suffering and the trial and even, yes, the death of his own promised Messiah to bring about our redemption. And the second the second one, I honestly, like, the first person that really dug to find where this reference was in Scripture, my hat is off to them, because I would never have gotten it from I and the children God has given me. And they did this before Google, before you could just type it into Logos or Blue Letter Bible or something. And they were like, yes, of course, this person is quoting from Isaiah. And maybe you have a footnote or in the margins of your Bible, it tells you, yes, this person, the author is quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18. And it's, again, one of those times where the author is going, you know, like Isaiah talked about. And we would all go, yes, of course, Isaiah, we're well-versed in that. Uh, I had to go back and look. Isaiah, he was one of those prophets, and what did he do? Isaiah was a prophet during some very troubled times in the later half of the kingdom period, and he was a prophet that, like many of them, 
was not listened to. He had a prophetic word for the people, and they rejected him. And then Isaiah had a couple of sons that, he was, that uh, God told him he had to give symbolic names to. And these sons had, excuse me, symbolic names uh, about uh, a remnant that returns and wandering and finding redemption. Um, actually, their names were uh, Sher Jashub and Maher, mm, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So, you know, those of you that are expecting children, I'm um, telling you, it look, look, Kevin and Emma might have dibs on Zerubbabel, but Maher Shahala Heshbaz is still up for grabs, all right? David and Christy, if you're listening, that's on the table. I'm just saying, okay? Um, we'll have a nice boom of, of uh, babies here at HCC, and uh, I'm telling you, Maher Shahala Heshbaz, I can't even say it right. It's going to top all the charts, I'm telling you. <clears throat> But he gives them these symbolic names to illustrate the point that he is making. That though you are wandering, though your word is being rejected, your very sons will bring about this redemption. And God's redemptive work in his people is being, uh, there's, there's this connection being drawn between Jesus and Isaiah. Jesus, who too was a prophet whose message to the people was rejected, and still, and still, his work and his sacrifice helped to usher in God's redemptive work. And that's what's happening. And even better than that, we get to the real good part in verse 14. Through his death, he's delivering us from our enslavement, and we get to call ourselves brothers. We get to be brothers and sisters along with Christ and call ourselves sons of God. I always remember the, the very first time that I read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Of course, I'd have to mention it. It's been a few weeks since I mentioned Lewis. I have to now. Um, when he says, you know, that we get to be called sons of God, whatever that means. And that was a phrase that always stuck out to me because it feels kind of, it feels sacrilegious. Like, no, Jesus is the son of God. I don't get to be called the son of God. What happens is because Jesus is the perfect human, not just God, he is the perfect human, he invites us to partake in this inheritance too. We too, as brothers and sisters of the Son of God, get to experience intimacy with God the Father. And that's incredible. I mean, think about that for two seconds. That's just amazing. We get to be called sons of God because Jesus is the perfect human. And he does it all. Surely it is not to angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And here the author just starts to hint at this, this idea and this theme that we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks that he opens up better um, when he says Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is the perfect high priest. Jesus is the perfect king. He is the perfect prophet. And he is the perfect priest. He is all of those because he is the perfect human. These are human offices. And, we think, and when we think of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, he is only the perfect prophet, priest, and king because he is the perfect human. And he had to be the perfect human in order to be our perfect priest. And we'll get into that in a couple of weeks because Jesus is 
the perfect human. And finally, we get one of these fun, fancy, Bible-y theology words that he is our propitiation. Because we as human beings, we need, we need someone on our behalf to be the perfect human. Because we have not done that. We have not fulfilled our purpose the way that God intended it to be when he designed and created us. And yet we get all of the rewards because Jesus did it in our behalf. Our perfect propitiation. Why? Because he is the perfect human. Well, so what? What does this have to do with us? How do I therefore live? This can be a little bit dense sometimes. We're talking about theological issues. We're talking about things about, you know, when I I use words like concursive authorship and hypostatic union, and these are things that people have written very, very thick books about and debated in academic theology. What does that mean for me when I go to my job tomorrow? What does that mean for me when I take out the trash Thursday morning? What does it mean for me when I bump into my neighbors? Because yes, This too has implications for us here and now, thousands of years later, and I want to explore that. And so we ask the question, so what? Well, remember that all of Hebrews sets up this comparison between Jesus and any other uh, religious or faith or, uh, you know, God uh, religion worship, and Jesus' humanity underscores that he provides the best answers to life's biggest questions. When you look at any other religious system in the world, there is an obvious comparison that the author of Hebrews is setting up by saying Jesus is better than anyone or anything we could ever possibly worship. Because we, all of us, no matter what our beliefs, no matter where we come from, no matter what our language is, no matter if we grew up going to church or mosque or nowhere at all or on a desert island, we, all of us, have these big questions in life that faith and religious systems seek to answer. We, all of us, have these big questions about where do we come from? Why are we here? What's the best way to live? Where are we going next? What happens when we die? And there are tons of people, tons of programs and systems and followings and people, many of whom will gladly take your money, who are offering answers to all of life's biggest questions. And when we read Hebrews... What the author is trying to get us to understand is that Jesus has the best answers for our origin and purpose, morality, and destiny. Jesus has the best answers for all of these. Why? Because he is the perfect human. Not just the perfect God, but because Jesus himself is the perfect human, he provides the best answers to all of these And it all comes back to the big idea, the big exhortation of the book of Hebrews. Don't drift. Don't drift away from your faith. Cling to Jesus. Second, following Christ means intimacy with God. As we we follow Jesus and as we emulate his example... As the perfect human, the Son of God, Jesus, who calls us brothers and sisters, we get to discover 
intimacy with God our Father. And therein lies life and purpose and deep abiding joy. And when we come through Jesus, the perfect human, as our brother, we experience intimacy with God, our Father, because Jesus is the perfect human. And the final thing that I want to say about this is, it, is a sort of indictment of our view of power itself, a sort of... Um, you know, part of this topsy-turvy, counterintuitive, upside-down gospel that God gives to us in the person of his son, Jesus, the perfect human. You know, if I asked you to think of a movie, okay, I'm thinking of a movie where um, all of humanity is threatened by some alien force that wants to come in and subject humanity and all of the earth to its dominion and power and influence. And so there has to be a certain uh, perfect human or team of humans that kind of uh, rise up and defeat them to hold the real power. The movie that I'm thinking of is, yes, that's right, every single superhero movie ever made, okay? This, this is a story that is just baked into our cultural and human mindset. This, this kind of fighting of power and who has real power and dominion and will subject the world. Who rules the world perfectly? God gives us an imprint of how real power and real influence and real dominion is. And we ought to lead through self-sacrifice. Because Jesus did it. Jesus is the perfect human and here's how he perfectly fulfilled God's idea of ideal humanity by giving it up through suffering and death. I think that it's said best in Mark's uh, gospel in chapter 10. What's happening is Jesus and his disciples, they're talking about this idea of ruling. And a couple of them are like, well, we're, yeah, we're all going to rule, but we'll be like the top rulers, right? You know, it's going to be like Jesus and then us and then all of you guys and then all of the day. You know, and they're fighting about this. And they're bickering over who's going to rule the best. And Jesus hears this and he's like, okay, well, we need to have a chat. Let's sit down. Guys, come on, gather around, gather around. And he says this. Jesus called them to him and he said, you know what those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them? But it shall not be so among you. As long as you are following me, you are not going to think of power and authority and dominion and ruling the way that the world does. You are going to consider it the way that I consider it. You're not going to be like that. You are going to be like me. And he sets himself up as the example in the very next verse when he says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You want to follow Jesus? You want to know that Jesus is the perfect human you want to live like him in such a way that it invites others into intimacy with God, their father, because we get to be called brothers and sisters of Jesus? Live like Jesus and give it up. Not to be served, but to serve others. And when you interact with others, do you serve them? 
Do you, do you practice self-sacrifice the way that Christ did? The way that he knelt down and washed all of their feet the very night before he gave up his life for them and for you and for me. Because that's how we'll, we'll lead. Because Jesus is the perfect human. God, thank you so much for your revelation to us, both in the form of your son, Christ, and in your word, the Holy Bible. And I pray that we would be diligent in wrestling with hard concepts and trying to figure out the best way to live in following you, not because that's how we score points, but because that's how we experience intimacy with you when we live the way you have intended us to. I pray that we would do it all for your glory to lift high the name of your son, Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.